the Accidental Engineer. Welcome all. Max of the Accidental Engineer here. Today, we have the pleasure of Alan Rohner joining us. Welcome, Alan. Hi. Uh, pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, for our audience that don't know you, uh, you have had a long career in startups, uh, most perhaps noticeably co-founding CircleCI, uh, and now uh, having started a new startup, uh, Griffin. Uh, do you mind sharing for our audience a little bit about your background and uh, how you've how you've come to this point in your career so far? Sure. Um, so I had a you know pretty standard uh, bachelor of science and computer engineering degree. Uh, did a boring enterprise software job for a couple of years, and then uh, Paul Graham started writing about how awesome startups were. So I said, "That sounds good. Let's do that." Um, had a couple couple failed startups, and then uh, did Circle CI, which worked great. And for our audience that haven't heard of Griffin yet, uh, do you mind sharing a little bit about what you guys are up to? Sure. So we're we're trying to build an API first bank, and that means like like a bank bank, you know, with like all the the full regulatory process. And the idea is, um, you know, be we're software guys, so then we'll be like you know, API driven and, you know, kind of like the Stripe uh, experience, but for everything else banks do, like, you know, current accounts and loans and, you know, wire transfers and all that kind of stuff. I'm guessing that there's a good dimension of this that is highly regulated. Absolutely. <laughs> do you mind sharing with our audience who, who may not have worked yet in finance about kind of the bounds that are placed on you as a business by being in finance? Sure. So um, ultimately, the root of this comes down to the fact that banks are the only legal entity that can hold other people's money. And they're the only legal entity that can make loans with other people's money. And so there's kind of some distributed systems like failures where you know you make a loan to one customer and you're using this is all above board, by the way, like I'm not, you know, being yeah, clever yeah. here, but like you, you loan out your money and or customer's money. And then a customer, the, that customer could come back to you and say, oh, I need that back now. And that's like the root of bank runs. And so it, it kind of resembles distributed systems. So there's a whole lot of regular regulation to make sure that never happens because the, the regulators really don't like it when banks fail and they really don't like it when the banks make them do extra work. So, so are, uh, you guys, are you guys' plans in the short term to stay domestic to the United States or are there uh, routes to being a more international institution? Uh, we're actually starting in the UK first. Uh, my co-founder is a UK citizen, dual citizen. Um, mm -hmm. But in, in the US, there are two ways to become a regulated bank. One is a state charter and the other is a federal charter. And with a few special exceptions, there have been no new federal charters since the 2008 crash. And wow. we think the go-to-market strategy of like, you know, so like if we want to be, you know, basically we, we want to sell to fintechs, you know, like Uber and Airbnb that have these very complicated payments organizations. And we say, well, we can operate in California or, you know, just just Texas or just New York, like that's not a great sell to, you know, these 
big fintechs because they already, you know, they can just go to Wells Fargo or whoever and get an account with them. So mm -hmm. the plan is started in the UK because uh, after after the 2008 crash, um, the US regulators tightened, got very, uh, they tightened things up. The UK regulators, on the other hand, had to, and the UK, the US has something like 5,000 banks. The UK has like four banks control 80% of the market, but the UK regulators had to buy RBS and they said, that sucks. Let's never do that again. So let's <laughs> open, open up the regulatory process. And so now there are a bunch of uh, challenger banks in the pipeline. Got it, so the plan is get a license there and then expand into the US and EU. So dialing back a, a moment uh, to giving some context about what your career has led you to, to doing so far, uh, maybe not specific to banking, uh, you did your undergrad in computer engineering, is that right? Yep. And I, this is a question I haven't asked too many of my guests so far, but how did you get your first job out of college? How did you get your first engineering job? Um, actually, it started as an internship. Um, a friend in school uh, was going through class, and then uh, his dad was a this guy's this guy's nuts uh, <laughs> old family friend by this point. But uh, he had a BS in double E, masters double E, mm -hmm. masters biomedical engineering. Then was all but dissertation on a double E PhD and then decided he didn't want to write his dissertation. So he went to med school and then became a radiologist. So for, our, for our audience members that don't know E electrical engineering, right? Yes. So yeah. this is perhaps the most well-credentialed person I've ever heard about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, was, I went to school with his son and then I was just looking around for internships and, you know, uh, I think it was actually coding over the summer and, oh, and and so then this guy became a radiologist and then um, decided that so he'd be on call um, from the hospital and they would wake him up at 2 a.m and say you know here's a a, a, a a study you have to read you know so this might be like somebody hit their head and then you have to decide you know do we need surgery right now or not so you'd kind of look at you know x-rays and ct scans and that kind of thing and then say you know you need to act now or it can wait until the morning. But, you know, he used to have to go into the hospital for that. So he said, you know, screw this and built his own hardware and software to send the images to his house. This is like pre-internet days. Uh, wow. Send the images so to his they, house. <laughs> they dro dro drove a floppy disk or? When no, you say you'd have to drive internet. into the hospital. Ah, okay. okay. And so then to avoid having to drive in, uh, he built the hardware and software to send film scans to his house you know like so he set up like a, a wire oh so, so they did have a phone line driven yeah yeah quote unquote internet connection wow these are early days yep <laughs> so, so this, guy, this internship tell, tell yeah. us about the, the type of role that you had in, in the coding that you did that summer uh i was building a in a medical image viewer on in windows in c plus um, plus mm -hmm. So um, this guy would come in on his days off from being a doctor and work on his software company on the side, <laughs> which is completely wow. ridiculous. But he he was just brilliant and a great 
a great teacher. Like I think I learned more about math and computers from him than I did from school. So how early on did you get familiar with functional programming? Because I know for audience that don't know about this, you have an active role in the Clojure community, which is the the Lisp for the Java Virtual Machine. Uh, yeah. Pretty, um, pretty popular, but a, a good segment of our audience might not be familiar with Clojure. Yeah. So, um, you know, on the internet, people are talking about SICP as one of the that's a structure and interpretation of computer programs, uh, which was a book and an MIT course of the same name uh, started. And on the internet, that was kind of like one of the, you know, one of the final bosses of programming, you know, like if you can, if you can hack this, you can, you can do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, I started hearing about that. And then I also, Paul Graham was also talking about lists and SACP is also uh a book about Lisp, at least partially. Well, so we can include a, a link in the show notes to the book. I know it's freely available online these days. Yeah. Um, so I read I read uh, PG Paul Graham's books uh, on Lisp, and then I started working through SICP. And then um, Paul Graham was talking about how he was going to write his uh, new Lisp called Arc. Uh, because, and then he wasn't releasing it. So I was like, oh, well, I'll write a Lisp and I can I can do this. And then uh, I got about halfway through it and then I started seeing uh, that Rich Hickey had just released Clojure, like, like the first public version. And that was 2008, maybe. So, and then I, I looked at Clojure and I said, that's, that's better than anything I would have written. So. So how did you get, Involved in first uh, contributing back to Clojure as a language and as, as as an ecosystem, had you had you been involved in open source contributions before Clojure? Not really, probably no. Um, so contributing, I just you know used it, and then you know I'd hit a a bug or a thing that annoyed me, and then I just started reading the source code, and you know so I learned a lot about how uh, Lisp uh, compilers and interpreters work. Just from just from reading Rich's source code. After working as an, I mean, you did your internship and then you went to work for this uh, tech uh, health health tech. I guess I guess there was yeah. no phrase back in the day to describe the business in that way. But I guess working in that health tech company, after leaving it and, and getting inspired by Paul Graham, how quickly did you come around to using Closure to? build out the, the startups that you worked on up till now? Almost immediately. So I think, I mean, I was, it just happened that I was working on Lisp, you know, like working through SICP and, and PG's books and then hitting Clojure. I was working on those almost concurrently with uh, the wanting to do startups. So mm-hmm. I just, at that at that point, I didn't really have a sense of, you know, combining startup risk with tech risk. And so I was like, hey, why not? You know, we'll just combine <laughs> them and do both at the same time. Well, one of, one of the things I remember reading about, I think I read Paul Graham's, Paul Graham's book, Artists and Painters. Did I get the, na- the yeah, title of that book? Painters. Yeah. Ha- hackers and Painters. Uh, he described how uh, 
the startup that he worked on that was acquired by Yahoo, I believe, yep. uh, was was a very simplistic Lisp program uh, backing, I think, e-commerce websites. Mm-hmm. And the way he yeah, described so it in Yahoo detail. Stores. Ah, okay. So post acquisition, it got rebranded as Yahoo Stores. Yep. Uh, the way I th- I think he went into detail about how in that book he went into detail about how they hosted the Lisp code on their servers, and it sounded like he was editing the source on the server, yeah. <laughs> and deployments were, uh, I mean, greatly simplified was I think the word he used, but. Uh, I think it was just rebooting the process, like gracefully. It probably wasn't even rebooting it. It was probably just yeah, hot reloading of some yeah. type. Yeah. Is is that something unique to a Lisp programming language or a Lisp dialect? Is that it? Um, it's easier to do that type of hot reloading. Yeah. So th- there are kind of two ways to do that. So Common Lisp is kind of. No, it's it's rare in that uh, you can serialize its running state to disk. So some people like this is not how closure development works, but uh, mm-hmm. you can start up a common Lisp REPL and just start defining functions, and then you can just hit save, and it will serialize the whole contents of memory to disk, and then you can just load that up later. So some there there have been some programs that just just you know stay in memory edit save and you know like it doesn't even need source files because you've just saved your running state mm-hmm. um closure doesn't work that way closure is more the more standard you know you have files and you you know you can do that kind of crazy enclosure but it's highlight well you can't serialize your state but um you can you can approximate it, but uh, for the most part, closure developers are more standard. You know, have su- have source files, can produce an artifact, you know, reboot the server, kind of thing. For audience members that might be interested in trying out closure for the first time, keep in mind there's kind of a huge spectrum of skill levels. But are there resources you'd recommend that people start with if they want to try out building maybe a simplistic web app using closure oh, i i actually don't know because when i started there weren't any <laughs> there were no resources <laughs> at all let alone I mean, resources. i'd venture a guess that at this point in time the official documentation is probably pretty good uh, but when it comes to maybe third-party libraries like you were mentioning web frameworks, is there such thing as a web framework in the Clojure ecosystem? There are, but they haven't really caught on much. Um, most, For the most part, they use we use uh, libraries that piece together. Um, so like there's not a Rails where, like it, with Rails, there's, a, there's a, an overall structure and then it's like you put your code here. Kind of the Clojure approach to designing programs for the most part excuse that and says, okay, you need to pick a library for routing. You need to pick a library for database access. You need to pick a library and then it's up to you to kind of piece those together. Um, There have kind of been approaches, there have been attempts at frameworks, but none of them have really taken off yet. So I don't know. (laughs) When it comes to frameworks, maybe 
separate of web frameworks, I mean, Java's got the JUnit uh, testing framework. Is there a, a testing framework for Clojure that's, you know, the dominant testing framework? Um, yeah, I mean, it's probably just Clojure.test, which is built in. Mm -hmm. um, there are a handful of other test libraries, and there are a handful of test runners, which is kind of separate, but yeah. When when you guys were first starting CircleCI, was Clojure your guys' first build target? Or or did you try to reach maybe, did you try to prioritize, you know, supported build environments by market popularity? I, I, out of curiosity. Yeah, we, I mean, we knew going into it that there would be approximately zero Clojure customers. I mean, there were there were a handful, but uh, we knew that our target market going in was going to be Ruby and Rails. That was the new mm -hmm. hotness at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and we kind of built it so that we didn't have to care what the customer ran, which is a great mm -hmm. decision. Mm -hmm. Well, for our audience that might not be familiar with even who Circle CI is or what CI is. <laughs> Uh, for our audience, that's continuous integration. It's a it's a process of having a system in place to automatically verify that changes you make to your software uh, work. <laughs> uh, so CircleCI was a is a vendor that um, uh, offers hosted services for running that automation. Uh, and to give a, to give a little history on continuous integration as a best practice in in the world of business. Um, I know, Alan, you were telling me about uh, the going back to the Industrial Revolution. What, what, were, what were some examples of uh, the realization that continuous integration was the way to go when it comes to engineering of any kind? Sure. So... At the end of the day, like CI is about, or testing in general is about making sure that you, that you're building the right thing. So like you need to know what you want to build. And then once you've made it, you need to know that you have the right thing. And so um, one of the earlier historical examples of this was uh, manufacturing guns in the early 1800s, where in the, in the old days you would guns were built by hand and they were kind of one off and so then because each one was built by hand individually you didn't you didn't know that the parts would the parts were almost certainly not interchangeable and so it was in the uh, early 1800s like i think some of the first examples were like the 1820s and then it really started taking off at, around the civil war uh like the, the army uh, in contracts would specify that all the all the pieces of the gun had to be interchangeable. So then that suddenly you had to be much more precise about, you know, this piece has to be this long and this wide and it has to fit into this hole. And that's actually one of the where one of the early usage of fixtures comes from, like as in test fixtures was like, you know, this piece has to plug in here and fit. Mm -hmm. um, so CI is kind of in a similar analogy of like, you know, this function has to, you know, fit through this hole and be this strong and, you know, whatever. So in, in the context of the physical mechanical engineering, like you're describing 
the government or militia or army writing specifications about what they would be willing to what what materials they'd be willing to pay for or parts they'd be willing to pay for needing to conform to some tests like you're describing for audience that aren't familiar with fixtures they mean one thing in software but what might a fixture mean in the physical sense of uh, of testing you know like does a bullet does a bullet conform to our specifications well it'd be a you know a chunk of metal that would be like you know, this piece has to fit through this hole and not fit through this hole. Or like, <laughs> I need to be able to clamp this thing at this point and this point. And, uh, you know, so it's like a fixture is kind of a piece. It's, it's a, you know, a hunk of metal for holding a piece in place. And so, you know, if this thing is designed properly, I can put this in place. Mm-hmm. Without, without you know, naming names necessarily about doing health tech type of stuff, but maybe when it came to your very early experiences with software engineering, like your internship and working in what might not have been called at the time, but is health tech, um, was there like a, a sense of urgency around QA and quality assurance and testing your Windows C++ code, or did your realization or familiarization with continuous integration come later, after you'd worked in uh, your first few jobs? I would say it came later. And I would also say that it's been, you know, the, the more experienced I've gotten, the more I care about, you know, correctness and design and building the right thing. Um, so. Alternatively to tests, there's, I mean, programming language features that try to accomplish this without writing tests. And I know a topic that uh, you you care a lot about might be this topic of type safety as one example of a language feature that uh, mm-hmm. protects the programmer from programming unusable software. But for audience that are ignorant about type safety and maybe programming language features that accomplish what you're describing. You mind describing some of those? Sure. Um, well, there are co- so the problem is there's, there, there's an infinite level of quality and building the right thing, you know? So at the very bottom level, we have the, like the software doesn't crash, which is, you know, we can talk about that in a second, but then, you know, as, also as being a businessman and selling software to customers, then you have the like, am I building something that customers want? Am I building something that, you know, am I building something that's pleasant to use? Am I building something that's easy to understand? Am I building something that is, you know, they can use the first time that that, that you can use that's, you know, grows in, in power over time. Like there are, there's so many layers to, correctness um but getting back to the software the programming language side you know um you know there's the static versus dynamic typing thing which has been raging for decades and then there's all kinds of other things you would like to be able to prove about your code you know like it won't throw exceptions or if i give you input that uh conforms to this specification then i'll produce you know the right answer whatever that is you know, there's there's all kinds of ways to go about this. Yeah, yeah. I re- I realize I asked an extremely 
<laughs> open-ended question kind of inviting you to share anything you would like about yeah. programming language opinions you've got uh i ask in part because i myself didn't do a computer science undergrad and so my education on the topics of programming language theory and design are extremely coming from a place of informal self-education i don't think so i've actually so learned anything about programming languages i mean like we talked a little bit about compilers but we didn't talk about you know that was how to write a compiler not what is a good language <laughs> so, yeah no i, I mean <laughs> no 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 the 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 point you brought up about how there's certain realities that uh <laughs> that, that software engineers have to deal with beyond what their choice of programming language is like what does the market want mm-hmm. is is something I think is important to point out to our audience is like people people can debate all day about programming languages, but one of the one of the recurring themes that I've pointed out uh, on episodes when it comes to job searching is if you if you want to prioritize what maybe programming language to learn or framework to learn, maybe go look at a job description. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. that'll be the most truthful about what is what the market demands at this point in time. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean I've I've, have, I've kind of been a prima donna in the sense that I I really like closure. And so I I you know you can totally make a trade off of do I want to be paid well or do I want to work on the tools that I want to work in. And you know just recognize that that's a trade-off and then you can make that choice. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a common refrain in the, in the Lisp community. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but Alan, I want to thank you for coming on and uh, yeah, speaking with me. And I hope we have an opportunity to do this again. For our audience that are curious about Griffin, what's your guys' URL? We'll include it in the show notes. Uh, griffin.sh. Awesome. And if people uh, have additional questions, send them to me, or uh, you can reach out to Alan perhaps on Twitter, which I'll also include your handle in the show notes. Uh, Thanks for coming on, Alan. Yeah, thanks for the time. Thanks for having me. For more, visit us on iTunes or our website at theaccidentalengineer.com.